Have a listen to this question. Now, other than the Maltese sergeant, has there been any other occasion in recent years where you've had to use magic to punish somebody? Oh, yes. Isn't that bizarre? It's from a 1976 documentary about witchcraft and the punishment they're talking about is not some scary fright in the night. They're talking about killing. More from that in a while. But that's the kind of thing you'll find if you go to your smartphone or online and type in all manner of Halloween type of words into the Documentary on One archive. There are over 1,500 documentaries there, so if you type in words like ghosts, death, funerals, spirits and so on, you'll get a variety of documentaries. Like the one about the body snatchers. Fifteen years later, this tomb was opened again and three skeletons in working clothes were found in it. The one about Dracula and being buried alive. By the side of the box was its cover, pierced with holes here and there. I thought he might have the keys on him, but when I went to search I saw the dead eyes, and in them, dead though they were, such a look of hate. Or just being buried alive. Yeah, I'm I'm looking for a health and safety permit and to be buried alive in Kilburn. All coming up in the next hour, and as I say, all on the documentary on one webpage on rte.ie and on your smartphone app. It was spring, 1958. And to get us started, a story from a documentary about mind and body separation. I lay down on the couch in the living room for a short nap while the house was quiet. When a beam or ray seemed to come out of the sky to the north at about a 30-degree angle from the horizon, it was like being struck by warm light. The effect when the beam struck my entire body was to cause it to shake violently or or vibrate. I was utterly powerless to move. It was as if I were being held in a vice. Several months passed, and the vibration condition continued to occur. It almost became boring, until late one night when I was lying in bed just before sleep, the vibrations came and I wearily and patiently waited for them to pass away so that I could go to sleep. As I lay there, my arm was draped over the right side of the bed, fingers just brushing the rug. Idly, I tried to move my fingers and found that I could scratch the rug. Without thinking or realizing that I could move my fingers during the vibration, I pushed with the tips of my fingers against the rug. After a moment's resistance, my fingers seemed to penetrate the rug and touch the floor underneath. With mild curiosity, I pushed my hand down farther. My fingers went through the floor, and there was the rough upper surface of the ceiling of the room below. I pushed my hand still deeper. It went through the first floor ceiling. My hand touched water. Without excitement, I splashed the water with my fingers. I yanked my arm out of the floor, pulled it up on the bed, and the vibrations ended soon after. I got up, turned on the light, and looked at the spot beside the bed. There was no hole in the floor or rug. They were just as they had always been. I looked at my hand and arm, and even looked for water on my hand. There was none, and my arm seemed perfectly normal. I looked about the room. My wife was sleeping quietly in the bed. Nothing seemed amiss. From a documentary called Mind Travellers, featuring Robert Monroe, who wrote about the separation of body and spirit, and that's from 1975. You'll find it by typing spirit into the search box on the documentary on one app or website. Type the word ghost and you'll come up with this. 
Eddie and the Lone Bush, a documentary about the storyteller Eddie Lenehan and his interest in the fairy world and things supernatural. Eddie's with the producer Peter Woods and shows him a bag found hanging in a tree out in the countryside. That bag was, was found hanging off of a tree on the boundary of a man's land. Nine hazel sticks pointed at each end. You know. Now, when I brought that here, when your man gave it to me, Mary wouldn't have it in the house. No way. She was right on the farm. She knew about these bloody things. No way. That bad news. So I took it in tennis to the Franciscans because there was a priest there at that time who was very good. You know, he, he wasn't the kind of man that would laugh at any of this at all. And he blessed it, just as I said, to take the badness out of it so that I could keep it because fish oak bag jizz. I mean, that's a thing you don't see every day. But he said to me, that Franciscan, he said, if you think fish oaks have gone out of the world, he said, you're a mighty mistaken. He said, there isn't a week in the year that somebody doesn't come into me about Pishogs yet. So, you know, like I was saying before, these things don't go away. And what, did, what did they mean, the nine sticks? Do you know what it means? Oh, to bring you bad luck. Just that. To take yeah. your luck. And, and, of course, the element of fright. If you see that hanging off of a bloody tree on your boundary wall, this was hanging off of a branch of a tree in over on the boundary, an ash tree, but hanging off of the branch on this man's land, you can imagine the, the it was a warning as well, of course. <laughs> we were... Whoever was doing it, I don't know. But as it happened, your man didn't give a feck. He just said, look, you might be interested in this. But another person that had right into the mental home. And if you think pishogs are shafoge and don't work, we'll hear from an old woman later on who takes them very seriously. Meanwhile, John Fleetwood was an old man when he made a documentary in 1994 on the creepy topic of body snatchers. These were people who, in the 17 and 1800s, sneaked into graveyards and exhumed freshly buried bodies. They did this because medical students required corpses to practice on and it wasn't possible to obtain the numbers needed in any other way. There was one Dublin body snatcher, though. I think he really takes the the biscuit for coolness and callousness. His mother died. There was a wake. She was buried. And he was apprehended the next night, digging her up again. And he said, uh, sure, no, a tenderer hand couldn't go over her than me own. And sure, she was dead. Sure, why would she want not for me not to have the few, Bob? John Fleetwood recalled one doctor in Abbey Leaks who procured his own bodies and used a student to help him carry them home. He would uh, tie the corpse between himself and a student, put a big all-enveloping cloak over the three of them and stagger home singing bawdy songs, pretending to be three drunks coming from a pub. And the same thing happened in Dublin. Medical students would do this. And they staggered up, particularly around the Camden Street area, going back to the College of Surgeons and the medical schools which were in Peter Street. And they would get away with it. Sometimes they'd dress the man up in old clothes and put him sitting up in a cart or something like that. And um, on one occasion, it was in uh, out near Baldonnell Airdrome there. They were, they were doing this and some fella thumbed a lift and sat up and put his hand down the cold body. He shot out of the cart like a rocket and was never seen again. The late Dr John Fleetwood enjoying the grim history of body snatching from a 1994 documentary, Grave Matter. 
Another man who takes pleasure in the grim is Eric Threlfall. He's a podcaster who specialises in horror movies. Not the really scary ones, but the trashy, low-budget ones. Eric came into studio to play a few examples, but he didn't play the video. He played the soundtracks and filled in the pictures himself. There's a slasher one, which is the man in the mask with the knife, like Halloween. He started by explaining the different genres. There's a zombie, of course, which is very popular at the moment. There's the ghost ones, which would be things like The Haunting, The Innocents, uh, The Amityville Horror. The Nature Takes Revenge genre, kick-started by The Birds, the Alfred Hitchcock film, and then Jaws made it very popular in the 70s. Then Eric told how he got into horror movies. Probably with... Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, I think. Really? Mm. It has kind of horror elements. It has kind of a sinister edge for a, a kid's movie. You're going to love this. Just love it. The Gene Wilder one? Mm. Mm. Which bits? The Wonkatania sequence. Which is the boat that goes through the tunnel. And projected into the tunnel are all these quite surreal, grisly images. <laughs> including one of a, a millipede crawling across someone's face. There's no earthly way of knowing. <laughs> it's quite uh, sort of Salvador Dali or Hieronymus Bosch or something like that. And I suppose it was those more sort of sinister, fantastic elements of Willy Wonka that got me intrigued. Is it raining? Is it snowing? Is a hurricane a-blowing? Is anybody out there? I remember my sister and one of her friends from school talking about this film and it, I was eavesdropping and it was I found it really terrifying. Really? Yeah. I was about 11 at the time and she's saying, oh, we went to see this film called Evil Dead, I'll tell you all about it, blah, blah, blah. And oh. I, was, I was listening in going, oh, my God, that sounds like the scariest thing ever. Is anybody out It's actually a comedy, and I realise that now, because I remember watching it with my dad, and my dad was laughing, and I, I couldn't understand why. Ellen Sandweiss's character hears a noise in the woods and just goes off in her nightie. I know someone's out there. As you would. As you would. I heard you. Is she armed? No, she just goes out in her nightie in her dressing gown. Is it a scary-looking dressing gown? No, it's white, but her nightie is scary-looking. It's brown. I heard you in the cellar. <laughs> and does nobody say, leave it, it's okay, nobody cares about the noise? Well, apparently if you go to the cinema in the States, you'll get a lot of people talking back to the screen, saying, what are you doing? Don't do that, don't go in there. <laughs> Horror films in general don't scare me, but I still find them quite fun. Generally, the dafter they are the more fun I'll have with them. The higher-brow ones, I suppose, are generally considered good films, but the ones I tend to be drawn to the most are quite trashy. Are you sure you're all right? Mom, I'm fine. What film is that? Slumber Party Massacre 2. You be careful now, OK? Remember, I love you. I love you too. I think she gets attacked by a frozen chicken later in that film. The chicken becomes possessed? Mm, yeah. They're, they're being attacked by a killer who has a giant guitar with a drill at the end of it, and he looks kind of like Shaken Stevens. That can happen too. 
What's this? This is Bloody Moon. But I had an awful experience on the trip. It's a German and Spanish co-production set in Alicante. Are you staying in the old or the new section? In the old part, bungalow number 13. A girl in the very same bungalow was murdered brutally in her bed. There's a great scene involving a polystyrene rock falling off a cliff. They didn't even try and carve a proper looking rock, so it's basically a cube and it bounces off the ground. Didn't you see that enormous rock that came flying down just now? It only just missed me. Senorita, you must read the signs. What good does a sign do when I can't understand it? I wouldn't mind teaching out of the language. Hey, you are on duty, remember? Uh, What's happening there? She's getting it on with a guy she thought was Ralph, but it actually is Miguel. He had a mask on, so she didn't know. No, leave me alone. When he took off his mask, he's got kind of paper mache attached to his face. I think it's supposed to indicate the scarring of some kind. And she wasn't impressed, and she said she didn't want to go any further, so he got a bit upset. Okay, so that's not fair. That's judging him on how he looks. It is. Yeah, it's very shallow. There's a Spanish-American movie called Pieces. I know, Lieutenant, I know. But I'm doing the best I can. It's just it's a, a laugh from start to finish, unintentionally. I mean, it's got bad acting, it's got bad dubbing, it's got the most ridiculous lines of dialogue you can imagine. You just got to give me more time. We don't have any more time. There's a scene where a dismembered body is found beside a swimming pool and about... I don't know, five yards away, there's a chainsaw covered in blood and the detective asks, do you think this has anything to do with the murder? (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything that frightens you at the moment? You're guaranteed to get a scare out of me if you put insects or creepy crawlies into a movie. Mildred, give me the lamp and flagstaff. Tell them I'm on my way. There's a William Shatner movie from the 70s called Kingdom of the Spiders, which is really ludicrous, but it freaks me out because it's millions of tarantulas invading a town. Kingdom of the Spiders is one of the nature-takes-revenge genre. Strange, frightful changes. That night, it all started. There's a great film actually called Squirm, which is about killer worms. They came from everywhere. Millions of writhing, seething creatures. Um, Is it good? It's actually really, really well made. Human flesh. Then in the eighties, there was one called Slugs, which was the same thing except with slugs, but it, it, it was it was not good at all. Are there people who are into horror movies who get offended by people like you sniggering at them? Yes, filmmakers. I think. Uh, <laughs> well, no, I was at a. Um, I was at a screening of a film called Shrooms, as in Mushrooms. It was the surprise screening at Dublin Horathon in 2007, I think it was. And it was really, really bad. And the whole audience booed at it. Well, they, they laughed at it in places and then booed it at the end, not realising the director was in the crowd. And oh, he, was, no. he was going to be doing a surprise Q&A afterwards, which was scrapped. So you have the stupid person going off look, investigating the sound. Yes. Okay, and then what other stuff? What other there's, all, there's a lot of films have a Joker character who likes to play pranks on his friends. He's usually not long either for this world. <laughs> so, so when you watch a movie and you're watching this sort of the, the lineup of people, can you mm. identify? Who's- yeah, it's certainly if you're watching something from the 70s and 80s and you have never seen it before, you can tell straight away 
who's going to be there at the end. And you, you can't really tell what order they're going to go in, but you know who's going to survive and who's not. Who does survive? It's usually the girl or the boy who's a bit smart. One, they might have glasses. They might read a book or something. Like, if you think of Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, she's kind of nerdy. She goes around in the cardigan. You know, she's more interested in studying than she is in going out with boys. And that's why her friends meet a grisly end and she doesn't. Oh, I see. Mm. So there's a lesson for us all in that. Yeah, smart girls. <laughs> and what else? What other kind of motifs and, and devices do they use? Camera will pan past a scene in the kitchen, for example, and you'll see a big shiny knife or an axe or something hanging there, and then it'll pan back a second later, it'll be gone, and you know that something <gasps> sinister is about to happen. I love that. Yeah. That stuff is really terrifying. Mm. If the ambient noise and the background music drops to a certain level... Well, you know, okay, something loud is about to happen. I can also tell in the first 30 minutes of the film when something loud happens, it's just going to be a cat jumps out or somebody appears from behind a door. Whereas if it's in the later part of the film, something supernatural will happen. And does anyone try and engage with these people and see can they do anger management or counselling? <laughs> Surely there must be a character there with glasses who goes in and says, um, can we talk about this? Mm. There is a scene in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 where somebody tries to reason with Freddy and he gets thrown onto a barbecue. So, How does, I think the, how does the reasoning go? He says something like, please tell us what you want. We're here to help you calm down. <laughs> Freddy's having none of it and he throws him onto the barbecue. But is yeah. Freddy kind of remorseful then after that? Does he kind I don't of... think, no, I don't think that Freddy has ever shown any remorse. Mm. Okay. You've got the body. I've got the brain. There's a final chase scene often, isn't there? Mm, yeah. It was predominantly with women and they became known as the final girl. That would be epitomised by Jamie Lee Curtis because she was the final girl in Halloween, Terror Train, Prom Night and The Fog and Halloween 2. It's the girl who has to endure sort of 20 minutes of being chased at the end of the film by the killer and then finally you know, wins. Breaking a lot of furniture. Yeah, that's the door that'll have to get replaced. And Jamie Lee's about to smash the glass. Well, the patio and door will have to be replaced. Nobody worries about no. what the parents will say when they get home. No, she won't be getting a tip for this babysitting job. Why does the woman in the nighty and the dressing gown not come out to help her? She seems to be keen, <laughs> yeah. she seems to be keen on investigating. Well, no, she's, she's had enough of venturing outside after her encounter with the tree. Help me! Please! Please help me! Help! Can you remember a scene that was really, really good at, at building the anticipation and then just a total letdown? Well, during the 80s, videos and film over here were censored quite heavily, so you'd get a lot of that. you get a lot of build-up. And then no payoff because the scene would have been cut by the censors. Really? Mm, completely. Yeah. So what would happen? There's a film called Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And if you watch that back in 1984, 85, the film had no payoff to any scene. And you'd be left one. It became confusing because you didn't really understand what was going on. But it's kind of a supernatural horror film. There's a scene where a woman finds a microchip and she starts 
meddling with it with a screwdriver and a laser beam comes out of it and flies into her face. But you don't see what happens after that and you're left wondering, OK, what happened there? Whereas if you saw the, the full unedited version, you saw exactly what happened. Which is what? Half her face was, <laughs> was blown off and an insect crawls out of her mouth. Ah. Which gives you, which kind of sets up a scene later in the film. And do you or do others tend to be a real know-all when you come out of that and go, well, it's not as good as the 1976 version starring... Kind of, kind of, yeah. I mean, I went to see a film called Quarantine, which is a remake of a Spanish film called Wreck, and two old ladies sat in front of me in the cinema, and I was prejudging them, thinking, what do they know? They're in the wrong cinema. And as I was walking out, I heard them discussing with each other the merits of Quarantine versus the original Spanish film, and I learned a valuable lesson. In March 2008, the U.S. government issued an emergency order sealing off an apartment complex in Los Angeles, California. There were no explanations. There was no evidence. Until now. Eric Threlfall, horror movie podcaster, putting us right on the nuances of the genre. That programme was called Daft Horror Movies and you can find it on the documentary on one smartphone app and on the website. And if you go into that site or app and search for documentaries featuring coffins, here's the sound you come up with. My name's Winifred Thompson and uh, I'm in the middle of a willow patch outside Balna Hinch. Uh, and I'm cutting... Do you want me to say what, what I want them for? <laughs> I want to make my own coffin. So uh, this this family have uh, a variety of willows here. And uh, so I really wanted a, var- a lovely coloured coffin. <laughs> now, when I say coloured, I don't mean it's going to be oranges and reds. It's different shades of yellows and greens, basically. And uh, I'll have a few reds, dogwood and through it. Winifred's family thought she was a bit mad making her coffin, especially seeing as at the time she was only 60. Well, if I don't make it now when I'm able, I'll certainly not make it when I'm not able, when I need it. One of them says, well, I'm not carrying you in case you fall out through the bottom. (laughs) While Winifred was cutting the willows for her coffin, the farmer came out to talk to her. She had a baby on her hip, a child held by the hand, and in her pocket a piece of paper with some prose on it that she had written about the appropriateness of willow coffins. Uh, to me, a willow coffin isn't just a box, but it's beautiful artwork, more personal and meaningful than wood. Just as this person's life is made up of many strands, some more comfortable to work with than others, the willow coffin is woven together and tells the story of growth. Different colours and patterns in the weaving can reflect a story and individuality of a life woven with care for a purpose, just like each one of us. I always say to myself that, I'm, that I can face death any time, but I'm not just ready yet. <laughs> I have a few things I want to do, <laughs> like make my coffin. <laughs> Winifred Thompson from 2011. Mick Meany didn't make his own coffin, but... He told me he dug his own grave and he practised for 11 days. But that's the reason he took down the crucifix and the rosebud because he saw spirits. 
Mick Meaney was a Tipperary man living in London who agreed, as part of a stunt, to be buried alive. February the 21st, 1968, and Mick Meaney got stuck into his last supper in the world of the living. Journalists packed into the Admiral Lord Nelson pub and scribbled down details about this Irish builder. Five feet, eight inches tall, 13 stone. In the archive news footage, you can see his thick, woolly hair, his blue eyes and his broad shoulders. His undisciplined training diet was packed heavy with steak and cigarettes. His coffin was foam-lined and built by a man called Rick Hooley from West Cork. He'd contact the outside world through two seven-foot pipes, one for food, the other for ventilation and conversation. His burial outfit? A pair of two-tone blue pyjamas. Mike, what happens? What do you do with yourself when you wake up in the morning? When I wake up at about 7 o'clock in the morning, I, I go for a half-hour physical training, guided overhead uh, by Buddy Sugar. What I, kind of exercises? All limber exercises and rolling about, and I just kind of press-ups and all kind of loosely the bone, like. You do press-ups inside the coffin? Yes, but slightly, like, you know, because I, I couldn't do a right press-up, but uh, just slight. And what, what happens after that? And I rub myself in with embrocation. Embrocation oil? Yeah. Yeah. And I have breakfast in. Yeah. And I, and I go for reading after, after the breakfast. You do a bit of reading, do you? Yeah. What are you reading? I'm reading an old professional boxing. Mick Meaney talking from his coffin in 1968. And that's a documentary from December 2015 on the Doc on One site. Just type in Mick Meaney buried alive. And if you thought his interment was bonkers, you should listen to his resurrection near the end of the documentary. Oh, the security light has come on here. They don't, they're afraid we'll do some body snatching, I suppose. And actually, resurrection men was another term for body snatchers who were the subjects of the 1994 documentary by John Skelly featuring the late Dr John Fleetwood. There was a man in Dundee who let it be known that he had planted a landmine in his child's grave. Now, that may or may not have been a try-on, but no body snatcher was going to risk his own premature dissection at very high speed. Dr Fleetwood said there was one resurrection man, a fellow named Murphy, who liked to get in early. Now, he would go to church and he'd look around and sort of sum up what sort of people were there, were there any of them likely to be ending up in the graveyard? And he was a specialist. He specialised in hair and teeth. Now, in those days, human hair was used for making wigs. And this chap, Murphy, he would watch and look at some lady there who had a good head of hair and he sort of tried to sum her up. Other body snatchers didn't like to exert themselves too much. If it was a pauper's funeral with possibly nobody there at all, they would put ropes around the body as it was lowered into the grave. There wouldn't be a coffin, just a shroud or winding sheet. And with every few uh, spadefuls of earth, they would drag the body up a little bit nearer the surface. And eventually it would be covered just by sods, that nice 20 minutes work, and you'd be well on your way with a nice, fine, fresh specimen that you could hawk to the nearest professor of anatomy. But sometimes the body snatchers had their own cruel comeuppances. And they heard a late funeral coming along and they jumped into a tomb to hide. This was the very tomb to which the funeral was coming. Now, we don't know what happened, but 15 years later this tomb was opened again 
and three skeletons in working clothes were found in it. And Dr John says the body snatchers being snatched themselves by death was a story that cropped up all over the country. The curious thing, I came across almost the same story down in Waterford and up in County Louth of a body snatcher carrying a body home strapped across his back as if it was carrying it piggyback, resting on a bridge and being toppled over the bridge by the weight of the uh, body and being killed. One was at um, Crook in County Waterford and the other was up just outside Drogheda on the back road up to Clotherhead. But whatever happened, the body toppled him backwards and the arms across his throat actually choked him. And up to relatively recently, older people crossing this spot would bless themselves and say a prayer for the poor man. For the two of them, I suppose. From the 1994 documentary Grave Matter, you're listening to Help the Halloween Party from the documentary on one. It's a series of scary and creepy and death-related extracts from our archive. In a moment, some pretty messed up witches, was Dracula one of our own, and the story of a lonely funeral. This is Helping the Halloween Party from the documentary on one, a selection of creepy and scary shorts and extracts from our archive, which is available on smartphones and on the web. Dredge, Lord of the Shadows, God of Life and the Giver of Life, yet it is the knowledge of thee... One of the documentaries in the archive is quite disturbing. It's from 1976 and is entitled Witchcraft. Let our dear ones who have gone before return this night to make merry with us. And when our time comes, as it must, O thou the comforter, the consoler... A witch chanting the Halloween ritual at a witch's Sabbath. Halloween is one of the eight great festivals in the witch's calendar. And tonight throughout the world, witches are gathering to celebrate the great festival of Samhain, the festival of death, the night for dead souls and spirits. Witchcraft is as old as man. Producer Pat Feely starts, pleasantly enough, talking to white witches and recording their ceremonies. Wherefore do I bless thee and consecrate thee by the most powerful and potent names of Carnena and Aradia. But then he gets on to Pishogs. The ace of spades raised at the consecration. The Eucharist smuggled home from the church. Eggs in the hay. Twelve white eggs in a circle. The thirteenth in the centre. These sound like charming folklore until Pat talks to one elderly woman who's been having trouble with her neighbours. They have been trespassing on our land and breaking down ditches and we've had trouble with water. Then they come along and they take us to court and we get no satisfactions out of the court. So I knew I had these powers because my mother had them and had used them from time to time as her mother did and... I decided to take action myself this way. And I'm pleased because I see that, well, at last I'm getting satisfaction. Their cattle have failed, their crops have failed, and things are not going as good as they used. And this is my way of getting even with them. Then it's back to witches, and it gets worse, because Pat has come across a so-called non-conformist witch, and I don't want to be mixed up with the general run of witches who go around with nude dancing and things like that. Would you use uh, witchcraft to kill a person, to oh, injure yes. a person? Without any doubt, if I thought that the person 
needed. In fact, I have done such thing. I think I can say that I have been responsible for many deaths, several deaths, shall we say, and quite a lot of very severe punishments, besides having done good to people who've been hurt through no fault of their own. I am rather the nemesis school of witchcraft. I'm a very vindictive person. To me, vengeance is a form of justice. It's an exaggerated desire for justice. I don't like mercy. I do like compassion. There's a tremendous difference between them. The first time I actually did it, I had occasion to hate bitterly a particular Maltese sergeant of police. And I was able to be the cause of his committing suicide. And it's useless to pretend that I wasn't delighted. There are few things in life have delighted me more than to hear that. From a 1976 documentary by Pat Feely. Just type witchcraft into the search box on our website or on the smartphone app and you can hear the full documentary. And actually elsewhere in that documentary, you can hear the sports writer Con Houlihan referring to the almost medieval explanation for witchcraft, which put it all down to some women's sexual desires going astray. So now you know. And all you needed to know about Dracula was in a student documentary sent to us in 2012 by Fergal Brown. 2012 was the centenary of Bram Stoker's death and the title of Fergal's documentary was Dracula was Irish. As the Count leaned over me and his hands touched me, I could not repress a shudder. It may have been that his breath was rank, but a horrible feeling of nausea came over me, which, do what I would, I could not conceal. The Count... Evidently noticing it, drew back, and with a grim sort of smile, which showed, more than he had yet done, his protuberant teeth, sat himself down again on his own side of the fireplace. We were both silent for a while, and, as I looked towards the window, I saw the first dim streak of the coming dawn. There seemed a strange stillness over everything, but as I listened, I heard as if from down in the valley the howling of many wolves. The Count's eyes gleamed, and he said, Listen to them, the children of the night. What music they make. Seeing, I suppose, some expression in my face strange to him, he added, Ah, sir, you dwellers in the city cannot enter into the feelings of the hunter. Dracula is one of the most successful novels of all time. Translated into almost every language in the world and with over 1,000 movies inspired by it, it lives on 100 years after it was written. But what makes it so great? Well, I think Dracula hits a kind of universal chord. Senator David Norris, a distant relative of the writer Bram Stoker, it's the archetypal creepy bedtime story. It's classic terror fiction. It also has all kinds of concealed themes about human sexuality and so on, biting the neck of these virgins and all the rest of it. And it's tremendously atmospheric, the way it builds up this isolated castle in a foreign country. And it's become part of the universal mythology. Bram Stoker lived in Dublin for the first 32 years of his life. Dennis McIntyre from the Stoker Dracula Association argues the novel's roots are in the author's childhood growing up in Clontarf, County Dublin. Bram Stoker had a very, very, to put in mildly, a very strange childhood. 
Bram didn't walk until he was seven years old. And the Pierce has spent most of his time in his room, in the dark. He seemed to have liked the dark all the time. And that was the time his mother had a great influence on him because she told him many and many of these stories. Like the one about the cholera epidemic in Sligo. The habit was when a new batch arrived for whom there were no beds, to take those who were stupefied from opium and near his death and remove them to make room for the new arrivals. Many were said to be buried alive. One man brought his wife to the hospital on his back and she being in great agony, he tied a red neck handkerchief tightly around her waist to try and relieve the pain. When he came again to the hospital in the evening, he heard that she was dead and lying in the dead house. He sought her body to give it more decent burial than could be given there. The custom was to dig a large trench, put in 40 or 50 corpses without coffins, throw lime on them and cover the grave. He saw the corner of his red handkerchief under several bodies which he removed, found his wife and saw there was still life in her. He carried her home and she recovered and lived many years. She told him that she saw people digging pits, deep pits or graves, if you like, and pushing people who were still alive, not with their hands, they wouldn't even touch the dying, pushed them with wooden poles and literally buried them alive in these pits. Bram Stoker's birth date is also significant. He was born in 1847 at the height of the Great Famine. His mother may very well have told him stories about the famine and the mass graves, and corpses left on the side of the road, and the walking dead, because during the worst periods of the famine, which she would have experienced, she would have seen it at its worst, and she would have seen emaciated, ghastly figures walking around in the trance of extreme hunger. In Bram's time, and indeed you could say to this day, there was and has been and probably always will be a stigma about suicide. Now, the stigma was at that time that if you committed suicide... It was alleged you became a vampire unless you were given the stake through the heart treatment. A stake was literally hammered through your heart before you were buried. Also, you were not allowed to be buried in consecrated ground. That was a church rule. You were buried in what was known as a suicide plot. Where Bram lived in Clontarf, just beside it is an area known as Ballyba. Now, there was one of these suicide plots there. And again, we know that Bram played for, for hours on end in that suicide plot. <laughs> As I sat, I heard a sound in the courtyard without, the agonized cry of a woman. I rushed to the window and, throwing it up, peered between the bars. There, indeed, was a woman with disheveled hair, holding her hands over her heart as one distressed with running. She was leaning against a corner of the gateway. When she saw my face at the window, she threw herself forward and shouted in a voice laden with menace, Monster, give me my child! My name is Peter Condell, I'm the tour guide at St. Michael's here, and I'll be taking you down to see the mummies. The steps are a bit uneven, be careful of the fourth one. It's big. Now, here we are with the mummies. The one on the right as you're looking is female, but she's the most damaged, so she's... Underneath St. Michael's here are burial vaults. Male. And it is known that Bram Stoker's mother's family had a burial vault here, and the young Bram Stoker used to visit these vaults as a child. 
And the one at the back, the Crusader. He's buried with his legs crossed, which apparently is traditional amongst the Crusades, although in his case, he's crossed at the thigh bones and his lower legs broken and hooshed up underneath him. Again, because he's too tall. The first thing you notice about these mummies is that they're all in coffins. If they can be perfectly preserved through hundreds of years of time, is it not possible there could still be life in them? That they are just sleeping? Sleeping in coffins? Which is exactly how Dracula sleeps in Stoker's book. An extract from Fergal Brown's 2012 student documentary, Dracula Was Irish. All pretty ghoulish, but there are uplifting documentaries to be found if you're searching for Halloween Fair on our website and app. For example, if you type in funeral, you'll get this Dutch documentary about the efforts the local authority in Amsterdam go to when burying unclaimed bodies. This is the St. Barbara Chapel on the edge of Amsterdam. It's sober, elegant, and almost empty. And in particular, the efforts of one man. My name is uh, Gerfrits, uh, Jerry in, in English. I am now uh, 65 years, uh, years old. And uh, till uh, the year 2005, I worked for the city of Amsterdam. And so I came uh, uh, in a job where I uh, had to take care of uh, people who died in Amsterdam and had no one who gave the order to do a funeral. When I started this work, it was nice funerals, but they were very, very simple. There was nothing wrong with it, but there was a big difference between funerals. And I didn't like it that people who were walking on the cemetery could see, oh, this is from the city of Amsterdam. I don't want to have those differences in, uh, in, in people. So what uh, did the city of Amsterdam do when we had a funeral? We always ordered flowers. Yeah, flowers. Why uh, flowers? No one is coming to the funeral. Well, it doesn't matter. These flowers are not for me. These flowers are not for visitors. These flowers are for the, the person who passed away. It's for respect. So, flowers. While Gerfritz was slowly creating a new municipal ritual, Amsterdam poet Frank Stadek had taken inspiration from a fellow writer who wrote a poem for a man who died anonymously. Toen dacht ik, dat is inderdaad prachtig. Static reckoned this was a very worthwhile thing for a city poet to do. Toen heb ik uiteindelijk, ik geloof, gebeld of een e-mail gestuurd van, kunnen jullie daar wat mee? So he called Gerfrit's office to see if they were interested in his idea. Nee, daar kunnen wij niks mee. They weren't. Vervolgens heb ik hem... Static just kept emailing. Telkens gebombardeerd met nieuwe e-mails net zo lang. Static persevered. He decided to continue mailing Gerfritz until he was prepared to meet with him to talk about poems at the funeral. Suddenly my email box was filled with requests from Mr. Starik. He had a great plan, poets on the funeral. He kept on, on sending emails. What did you think? Did you think when you got these emails, this is a crazy idea? No, not a crazy idea, but I, I, I thought privacy. Yeah, it's privacy. Uh, they wanted to know things about uh, my dead persons. And, uh, so you really felt responsible for all of these yeah. people yeah. that had been found dead? Yeah. On a certain day, I, uh, I uh, invited him in my office, and there we had, uh, we had a nice, uh, nice chat. 
hij, hij bood de aanblik van de, als, als een beroepsmilitair. Stadek remembers it a little differently. He says he went to the social services office and met a man with a direct gaze and a military bearing. Had hij van dat kort geknipte borstelige haar, een snor, een sterk gegroefd gelaat. Ger Fritz had a brush cut and a trim mustache. He wore his mobile phone in a holster. He was decisive and distant. Fritz underscored the fact that the funerals must be perfectly organized. All eyes dotted, T's crossed. Hij was zeer beslist over dat een uitvaart tot in de puntjes perfect moet verlopen en dat hij daar geen enkel. He would not permit any breach of protocol. Chapel, flowers, three pieces of music, four pallbearers, and above all, respect for the deceased. When he left my office. He had a bad feeling about it, and he was uh, very amazed that a few hours later, or maybe the next morning, I, I don't remember, that I phoned him and said, you want to do a poem? Okay, let's try. Starik. Ah. Starik says the call was brief. Okay. Ger Fritz told him uh, there was a death and gave a few details. Good. Uh, wanneer? But Starek had the feeling he was holding back. He kept asking Fritz for more information. There wasn't much. It was an anonymous death. No one could establish the identity of the man. But it was Starek's first poem, so he persevered. Where was the person found? How old were they? Fritz gave him minimal information. Okay, bedankt. Dag. I knew a lot about the people who were, who were dead. I often had information which I kept for myself. And what was the information that you, that you would hold back? Well, poets are emotions, it's feelings. And I worked with facts. An example, a man died, had ten children... No child came to the funeral, not interested. That is a fact. But a poet could make very much emotions to that. And I didn't want it on the, on the funeral. And then someone died from, from alcohol. It's a fact, but I don't think it was for the poet to know that. So it was the information that you thought might make the person look bad somehow. Yeah. 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 So correct. you really wanted to protect yeah. that person. Correct. That's correct. And, and why? Why so much privacy after someone has passed on? I couldn't judge about why the children weren't interested in their parent. I couldn't judge about the alcoholic problems from other people. It's, it's not for me to judge about it. So you worried that the poets were going to bring in that sense of, of judgment. And yeah. did they? No, they never did. I found it not so frustrating as well... Um Sadek says the withholding of information didn't frustrate him. In fact, he was impressed by Gerfrit's careful approach. He found the whole situation inspiring. The first poem was born with ease. Dag man zonder naam, ik 
goed doen. Onderweg naar het laatste land waar ieder welkom wordt geheten. Waar niets van niemand hoeft te weten. Dag goodbye, stranger. I say goodbye. On the road to nowhere, to the final country where everyone is welcomed in. Where nothing needn't know your origin. Dag meneer. Zonder papier. Zonder identiteit. Part of the Radio Netherlands worldwide documentary The Lonely Funeral by Michelle Ernsting. And that's on the documentary on one app and website. And it's a classic. Time to say goodbye. Thank you for being with us. I'll leave you with one last story from Dr. John Fleetwood, which we heard in the documentary on Body Snatchers. Even on such a serious subject as death and burial and everything like that, one does get the occasional bits of black humour. And there was a story I remember going round some time ago about this doctor who had a very, very demanding patient, you know, sort of one that always rings up just as that critical penalty has been taken or something. But eventually, like all good hypochondriacs, he died and was buried, and I won't say in what cemetery. And um, the doctor, oh, he was delighted with himself for a while, and then didn't he die very shortly afterwards? And he was buried beside his erstwhile patient. And I happened to know the caretaker of that cemetery, and he was talking to me, and he said, you know, you're not going to believe this. But he said, your friend, the doctor over there, I heard an awful noise around his tomb one night. I didn't know what it was, I thought it was vandals. And I went down, and he said, honest to God, no, this is the truth I'm telling you. Honest to God it is. I nearly believed him. But he said, a gaunt arm came out of the tomb beside your friend, and it banged on his tomb. And a deep, sepulchral voice says, Would you have anything that's good for worms? (laughs) 